Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Richard Carlson. If I look somewhat older and more drawn than I have in my recent pictures, it's because of the harrowing experiences I've been having here in the maze. The maze is the first picture in three dimension that delves into the weird and terrifying world of the supernatural. If you're familiar with the exciting effects that can be achieved with 3D, you can imagine what happens when something from the great beyond reaches right out of the screen to clutch at you. Hi, this is Jim Healy. I'm the director of programming of the UW Cinematheque and also the Wisconsin Film Festival. The history of stereographic motion pictures stretches back to 1915, and founded in 1990, the 3D Film Archive has now made available dozens of 3D features and shorts from throughout cinema history via new digital restorations and also screenings of archival dual-system 35mm prints. The archive was founded by Bob Fermanek archivist, collector, film and record producer, and a leading authority on the history of 3D motion pictures. Uh, the 3D Film Archive website, which is 3dfilmarchive.com, no hyphen between the three and the D, just 3dfilmarchive.com, is an amazing resource on the history of 3D, uh, especially 3D movies from the 50s and the 80s and uh, even up to today, including their restorations. Now, in addition to his contributions towards sharing and preserving 3D history, Bob is the co-author of Abbott and Costello in Hollywood, a celebration of the great comedy duo. And over three decades, he served as the personal archivist for the late great filmmaker and comedian Jerry Lewis. Bob, welcome. Well, thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here with you and to be back in Madison again. I love coming here. It's great. We had Bob here for our screening of Creature of the Black Lagoon back in March, and he gave the audience a thrilling but brief history of 3D up to that time in uh, film history, which was 1953 when the creature was released. And uh, and uh, so we thought we'd bring you back then and talk a little bit more with us this afternoon about about the history. Well, that was the that screening of Creature was a lot of fun, and I think it was a sold out crowd for that Absolutely. one. Absolutely, yeah, uh, and a very enthusiastic audience. And what I really enjoyed a very young audience. Right. Uh, you know, we've been doing this work a long time, and my interest in 3D dates back to when I was. 11 or 12 years old uh, and it's always for me been about restoring the film preserving the the film and getting it seen again and uh, it's very gratifying and we've had an opportunity to present our work at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the TCM festival in Hollywood we think 3d is a lot of fun but we also think it's a very significant part of film history and that's why we're here to showcase it and help you get the word out about your preservations and, and screen them for a public, uh, a new public, hopefully. Yeah. Now, uh, you, you said you you first fell in love with 3D when you were 11, and when you were 11, the the, the golden age of 3D, that the two or three years in the 1950s, uh, had long since passed. Oh so my, yeah. how did you discover, how, how were you <laughs> able to discover 3D as an 11-year-old? I could actually trace it back earlier, uh, and it would have been... The spring of 1966, I was five years old, 
And Batman was the rage of the nation, the TV show with Adam West. And like all other five-year-olds, I was bat crazy. And my parents, you know, God bless them, were able to occasionally pick up the you know, toys that they were putting out to promote the show. One of them was a Viewmaster reel. And uh, I can still remember just being totally enchanted with these color stereo images of Batman and Catwoman. Um, and, and also at the time, you know, we had a black and white TV. So this mm, was the first time color. I'm seeing those amazing sets and costumes and color. And the 3D, and it just really captured my imagination. Uh, so Viewmaster was the start for my interest. And, uh, and then when I was about 11 or 12, my dad took me to New York for my birthday. And uh, we were on a subway, and I saw these billboards announcing... Cinerama is back. Hmm. And I didn't know what Cinerama was, but the image was this huge wraparound movie screen and a roller coaster and an audience, you know, kind of immersed in that. So that got my imagination going. And I said, what is Cinerama? Uh, and my dad had always been into movies, so he knew a bit about it. And then that led to a discussion of 3D movies. And that was all I had to hear because uh, it was something you couldn't see in 1973. There were no mainstream 3D films being made. There was no way to see the older ones. And, you know, you tell a, a curious 12-year-old that there were all these great films done in this amazing project. Process, but you can't see them. Was there a particular uh, one that really sparked interest? I remember hearing about House of Wax and uh, before I had an opportunity to see it in 3D. I, I think it was the horror films because, you know, I was reading Famous Monsters of Filmland, sure. so I knew about Creature from the Black Lagoon and House of Wax and it came from outer space and, you know, the horror things were high on my on my list and in the late 1960s uh columbia's eight millimeter uh outfit had released uh, the bad magician in 3d with mm -hmm. vincent price so i really made an effort to find that and uh, was able to track down a copy and i thought it was incredible uh and looking back on it, it it's remarkable how much that uh uh, affected me because it had been converted from its original 3D shown in the 50s, which was polarized, uh, a, a very high quality and superior 3D image. And it had been converted to this red and green anaglyphic 3D, mainly because it was cheaper and easier and you could do it on one strip of film. So as degraded as the image was, it still blew me away and I wanted to see more. Uh, and, you know, it just built from there. Uh, you said it was uh, on Super 8? Yeah. And was yeah. it one of those condensed versions with just the... the Highlight 3D scenes. Yeah, it was, it, it was eight, scenes? eight minutes of scenes from right, the movie. Oh, nice, uh, but it was enough to to you know get get the journey started. And uh, you also realize at that time in the mid 1970s there were there's obviously no internet. Uh, there had only been a few technical books published in the 50s. Those were impossible to find. Uh, and I would go to my local library and and just read up on film books and and try to understand and know more about it. Uh, and I found that a lot of the things that had been written were not very complimentary to 3D. Hmm. Uh, it was very dismissive, a gimmick. A gimmick was, that uh, didn't work and went away. Yeah, yeah, that nobody wanted to see anymore. And it was like, I didn't want to believe that because I had seen, you know, I was still 
thinking of the Viewmasters and what kind of stereo image mm. those gave you, and why couldn't the movies look this good? Mm. And then as you know, time went on, and, and I did finally get to see some of the vintage 3D films properly mm. in 35mm. Which is... Uh, to do dual strip, two projectors. Two projectors. Running at the same time. Running in synchronization. You had uh, the left and right side prints, and these had to be shown precisely interlocked. You, you could not be out of sync even by a frame, or it would lead to a headache. Uh, even the shutters needed to be in phase, because if they were out of phase and a shutter on one projector was opening while another was closing, you'd get a watery image on screen. Mm. Uh so there were a lot of technical challenges to presenting 3D uh, that had killed it. Uh, but you were but, able to see it done right, you were saying. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, you. There were some repertory theaters in New York City. The Thalia was one. The 8th Street Playhouse was another. And they were running existing prints, and they were doing a pretty good job of it. And, uh, wow, that was an eye-opener. And the more I saw, the more I wanted to see. You know, so it... Uh, as I said, it just built built from there. And uh, in the, about 1981, on a trip to California, I literally ran into Jerry Lewis on the Warner Brothers backlot making a movie, and got to uh, got to know Jerry and his manager Joe Stabile. And uh, I learned that Jerry had this huge warehouse of memorabilia in Hollywood that he hadn't maintained in decades, and he didn't even know what he had. So I talked him into giving me a job, basically. And uh, when I moved to L.A. to work for Jerry, I also really started digging into vaults and warehouses and archives to find what existed on 3D. Uh, and, uh, and that's how the idea of the 3D film archive began, because I began seeing that there wasn't a lot of care or interest even in saving these films. Uh, and elements were being discarded. Uh, you know, the classic story was, uh, I was friends with Bud Abbott Jr. I got to know him pretty well, and he were, was an optical printer at one of the labs in Hollywood. And he went to work one morning, and there were a couple of boxes of fine-grained masters on the maze sitting on the loading dock. And Bud asked, why are these out there? And he said, oh, they're, they're duplicates. We're junking them. And Bud was savvy enough to know that, well, no, this is the right side fine grain. You know, you need to keep that because it's different than the left side fine grain. Sure. If you throw out well, one or the other, you're not going to be able to reproduce 3D. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so there was that kind of dismissive attitude towards keeping the material that was prevalent. Uh, so for me, it was almost a case of being in the right place at the right time because I was able to start digging deep for material. And that's how the archive started, really. That's uh, interesting because it's at, at a time when 3D is having a little bit of a comeback, as I said, with movies like Parasite and uh, House of Wax and Dial M, Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder were being re-released. Uh, but in a different process, which I, th I think we want to, a 3D process, but a different 3D process that I think we want to talk about in a little bit. But uh, you also mentioned Anaglyph 3D being something for home use and and uh, on that print of The Mad Magician you, you looked at. Um, but uh, a, a big part of the story of 3D and its, uh, and its 
kind of coming and going over film history is at, at, at least when it was shown on film is that it was not often not shown correctly and, and properly and it and it created problems and so a, a large part of the problem the public that was seeing those screenings that weren't being projected right rejected it and understandably so because it was something in the hands of theater management and projectionists that often often failed I'm, I'm guessing when you did your a lot of your research you found out that in fact this was the case that oh my goodness yeah uh the polaroid corporation had a real vested interest in seeing 3d succeed because they were making the glasses uh and also the the filters that would go on the projection port windows and uh the golden age of 3D, a lot of people say two, three years, like 1952 to 1955. Well, that sort of bookends when the first and last feature were released at that time. But the reality of it, it wasn't three years. It was maybe three months because you had the first batch of titles getting released in the spring of 1953, and that would be titles like House of Wax, It Came From Outer Space, Fort Ty, Sangaree. They all did really good business, but uh, by the fall of 1953, uh, attendance in 3D movies was beginning to plummet. And in going through a lot of the trade journals from that time, uh, it was basically people that were getting headaches, mm -hmm. and they were seeing bad presentations. So Polaroid was very concerned about you know losing this golden egg, and they did some field studies, and they found uh, that nearly 50% of all public 3D exhibition was shown either out of phase or worse, out mm -hmm. of sync. So, so all the, uh, when you say out of sync, it means that only one frame of one of the reels uh, is out of sync with the other one. That's enough to. Oh yeah, to, I mean, to ruin it. you could still, uh, you know, you could still watch it, but it's not comfortable. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, you pay your sixty-five cents and go to a movie and go home with a headache. You're not exactly going to go to see another three D movie. And people didn't understand why they were having this reaction. A lot of, a lot of people thought it was the glasses and. Uh, the films themselves, which thankfully we've been able to prove now with the restoration work we're doing, that these things were pretty well photographed. Mm. So they've got some issues and things that we correct now, but for the most part, you know, these were very skilled cinematographers and, and camera uh, optical people working on these films. Uh, so it was really the exhibition end where the ball was dropped mm. and... Uh, uh, so it, it came and went very quickly. And uh, one of the things, too, you, you mentioned the difference between polarized projection and anaglyphic. Well, the easy way to break that down is in the early years, very early years of, right. of 3D films. And that would be 1915 through to the mid-1930s. It was all anaglyphic. And then we're talking, and, uh, when we're talking 3D films from this era, we're talking experimental shorts. Uh, yeah, know, little, maybe even uh, theme park attractions or World's Fair attractions, things like that. Not even no. Uh, these were theatrical shorts that okay. played played standard movie theaters. Uh, Pathé did a series of them uh, in the mid twenties. There were a few features done uh, beginning in nineteen twenty two, uh, but you know they didn't have the 
technical capability to do polarized yet because the polarization process hadn't been developed yet. Uh, an anaglyphic was relatively easy because there was two color printing going on with Technicolor and Kinemacolor and other processes like that. And um, it was not difficult to use the red and green dyes to create a 3D image on a single strip of film. But beginning in 1936, when Edwin Land developed uh, the polarization filter and process, then they, they had the potential to have a high quality, even full color 3D image. And that's when it entered the you know, World's Fair, Golden mm. Gate Exposition type of... Uh, they were shown to tens of thousands of people at very popular exhibits, at these uh, fairs and exhibits. Uh, and it would have continued, except uh, a little thing called World War II kind of entered the picture, and, and everything changed. Mm. So it, it sat dormant until the post-war era. Uh, at least here domestically, there were there were 3D things going on in Russia uh, throughout the, the 40s. But uh, here in America, uh, stereo photography took off in a big way in 1947 when the stereo realist camera was introduced. And that gave the average person the opportunity to photograph a full-color stereo image on 35-millimeter film. And it became enormously popular. Is this when Viewmasters are first introduced? Viewmaster dates back about a decade earlier yeah. uh, to the late 1930s. Uh, but the the realist was a you know very high resolution 35 millimeter format and uh that took off in a big way so uh that began the effort uh, among various optical engineers and and cinematographers to look for ways to do 3D on film and uh they went with the dual 35-millimeter system, uh, uh, which was probably not the wisest choice. But at the time, uh, the idea of doing 3D on a single strip of film hadn't really been developed well enough to make it work uh, in a, a mainstream way. So uh, they went with dual 35-millimeter, and it, when it worked, it was incredible, and business was, was booming. But that, that was very short-lived. Right, and then the... Uh 1952 was the release of Buona Devil, the first full feature in polarized 3D. And yes. the success of that kicks off a production of films, 3D films, at all the major studios at that point, almost all of them, I guess, at that point. Yeah, no, pretty much they all jumped in on it because Buona Devil was, was breaking box office records. And it's not a very good film, but it was the system and the 3D that was bringing people in. And uh, that was released on Thanksgiving in 1952, and by the end of the year, uh, Warner Brothers had had greenlit House of Wax, uh, and by early 1953, pretty much all the studios, the only one that held back was Republic, mm. and Herbert Yates uh, said quite frequently that, you know, the, their films, uh, you know, their and their audiences, uh, you know, didn't need 3D, that, uh, you know, it, it wasn't viable for, you know, the mom and pop theaters and things that did the westerns and all sure. so uh but every studio uh mgm warners fox columbia paramount universal well interestingly disney which was 
uh, their films were, I guess, were being released through RKO still at that time. Um, didn't didn't get to work on a feature, but they did do at least one short in 3D, right? Two. Two cartoons. They did Melody, which was in their uh, Adventures in Music series, and a Donald Duck uh, cartoon called Working for Peanuts. Right. And now Disney's, at least with their Marvel films and animated films, are probably the, at least in, in uh, current cinema t- terms, the largest distributor of 3D material right now. Oh my now. goodness, yeah. Uh, I mean, we've tried to pry some of the things out of the vault that they have, mm-hmm. including the cartoons, and uh, they now own the 20th Century Fox feature library, and there's a wonderful 3D film called Gorilla at Large uh, from 1954 that we're we're hoping will eventually get done but uh, so far no luck it's been very difficult getting that door open to us but we don't give up easily so well i hope that happens i want i want to talk about your preservation projects especially for uh, for home release and, and new dcps in a minute but can i uh oh can sorry I, we're with no, ben riser my... <laughs> here my um, colleague can i just ask along the lines of talking about the viability for the mom and pop theaters and also polaroid you know and, and and what you were talking about the problems with with the 3d exhibition what was involved as far as equipment and setup uh, that you know what what had to be brought into all these theaters to to get those films shown in a polarized way in the 50s did they have to bring in additional projectors or were they able to use the the two projectors that they would use for changeovers for regular films and just sync those up via some other control yeah it's a good question uh, Ben uh, that was one of the reasons that the dual 35 millimeter system was uh, accepted when production began because every theater had at least two projectors in the booth. Uh, Most of them had three. Uh, But what you needed for 3D was two 35 millimeter projectors that you would synchronize. And the ideal way to do it was with uh, cells and motors and wiring your motors into precise synchronization. Uh, It's not as easy as it sounds because you had to ensure that your shutters were opening at the same time and that for a full reel of film. And these were shown on 24 inch reels, which held about 50 minutes of film. you had to maintain that synchronization for that entire uh, reel. So there was care that needed to be taken in setting it up. Uh, and who would do that? Did the studios incentivize? Uh, did they did they pay for any of this setup? Did they send people out? Or did Polaroid do that? Or was it just up to the theater owners to... No, it was entirely in the hands of the theater owners. Um, they were expected to foot the cost for all of the equipment upgrading that needed. Uh, they also had to have a silver screen, which many theaters did not. So that meant either painting your screen with a, a silver-based paint or installing a new screen. Uh, so there was, you know, substantial costs, and that's why the smaller theaters and, and the ones that, you know, Herbert Yates said was the bread and butter for the Republic, mostly, they were not going to put that kind of money into. And it, it, 1953 was an incredible year of transition because you also had the whole widescreen phenomenon taking off. Uh, and, and even before CinemaScope uh, premiered in The Robe, you had... Uh, non-anamorphic widescreen that that got kicked off with uh, Paramount and Shane where a standard film was shown 
using a different lens and aperture plate to give it a wider image. So here you're asking theaters that want to remain competitive with each other and stay in business to install new screens, get new lenses, uh, new aperture plates. Uh, if they really wanted to go deluxe, they would install the, the new stereophonic sound that these films were, were being released with. That involved getting another dubber in the booth to play the 35-millimeter magnetic. Uh, it was a, a, a crazy amount of new technology that these theater owners were getting hit with. And, you know, for the chains, the big chains at the time, like RKO or Lowe's, uh, they, they could swing an expense like that to upgrade the whole circuit. But for locally owned theaters and smaller chains, it was, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of money. Uh, and the studios not only did not help with that, but they also hi uh, charged higher rates on the 3D bookings. Uh, you know, they were trying to soak these exhibitors for every penny they could get. And initially it seemed like it was working because the public was very anxious to see new 3D films. And the, the, the first eight or ten titles did incredible business. Uh, but as I mentioned, that, that began to die very quickly. Uh, Just one more technical question then. So uh, is this, it sounds to me like if, if a film was longer than 50 minutes as these features would be, it was then there an intermission while they... You know, put on the new reels for those two, two projectors. Exactly. Every every three D feature produced during that time, and there were uh, fifty, uh, and even fifty done domestically. Uh, every feature had a built in intermission point, and we always work to restore those now because those were known to the production team during filming. The screenwriters knew at some point about halfway through the movie there would need to be a necessary break. So they incorporated that into the script. And uh, these films have not been seen with the intermission since their theatrical runs. Uh, and we're, you know, we're very uh, happy to restore those because it's all part of respecting and preserving the original uh, vision for the film. Uh, even the shortest films, there were a few of them that ran a little over 60 minutes. Uh, Robot Monster, the famous, infamous Robot Monster. Uh, Cat Women of the Moon, another uh, low-budget epic. Uh, they all had intermissions built in. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there were a lot of challenges technically uh, and... Uh, we're happy to have the opportunity now to go back to original elements and, uh, as, as best we can, scan these things and, and preserve them and make them available on Blu-ray and DCP. So you're having a chance now to, to see them in many ways better than would have been seen in their first release. Years ago, I knew a, a gentleman in New York who had worked in the field for one of the, um, I think it was the Century chain and his responsibility during that time was to go QC 3D shows and he told me he said there was more often than not he'd get to a theater he'd look at the image on screen and you have a paying audience watching this image and it's out of sync or it's you know one is dim and one is not in sharp focus and all that and he'd make a beeline up to the booth and uh, you know the operator would be sitting there reading a paper or, mm. you know just we have a picture on screen that's good enough right sure <laughs> so sure. <laughs> yeah it, it's 
You know, now I'm a film guy and a purist, and I love celluloid and, and all, but now that you have digital projection, uh, and I'm not saying digital is perfect, far from it, but for 3D, it's taken a lot of the error uh, capability out of projection of right. vintage 3D. So that's why I said in, in some ways what you're seeing now is, is superior to what would have been seen 67 so years ago. Now, before we got to the digital era, we had, as I said, this second boom in the early 80s that utilized a different kind of single strip, single projector 3D technology. Can you explain how that worked for movies originally like Parasite and Coming At Ya and Jaws 3D? 3D. The movie fantasy of yesterday is now the terrifying film experience of the future. For technical reasons, the preview you are about to see is not three-dimensional. Be assured, Parasite is the most gripping and frightening movie you will ever see. And in 3D, you will be part of the terror. You are about to witness the future. Be warned, it is a shocking sight. 3D, the ultimate sensation of visual art, now creates the newest, most terrifying form of fear, Parasite. Sure, this was a system that had its roots uh, in the late 40s. A gentleman by the name of Colonel Robert Bernier was working uh, to develop a single strip system with both images on one strip of film. And uh, it didn't really get developed in time in the 50s, but by the mid-60s, it was ready to go, and it was called Space Vision. And basically what that system did was it took a standard four-perf 35-millimeter frame and cut it in half horizontally. So you had the left image for two perfs on top of the right image for two perfs. And there were advantages to that because you're now on one single strip of film. Uh, You are reducing resolution a bit, though, but... You're solving all the synchronization issues that killed 3D in Mm -hmm. the 50s. Uh, And it would be projected on one machine uh, through a filter uh, attached to the, usually the the front of the projector head. And that would superimpose the, the left and right images onto one image on screen. You still had to have a silver screen, though, because you're still using polarization mm-hmm. for the light. But uh, it solved those problems. It did introduce others. Uh, you know, again, being on one strip of film, one projector, the light loss was pretty significant. Well, the light is, for one projector, is being split in half, right? Yeah. So you have 25% of the light that you would have had when you did projector 3d exactly in the 50s exactly and the, the polarizing filters and glasses are cutting more light out uh, so there was a, a lot of light loss with single strip 3d so there was often a dim image on screen uh, and it, you know the bubble was the first feature done uh, in space vision arch uh, this was in the was, 60s uh, I think right 1966 and uh, uh, in the late 60s um, a film called The Stewardesses was done in a variation on that system uh, where the image was not split horizontally but vertically. Right. And you had two 
the two left-right images on a 35-millimeter frame, but they were squeezed. So you had to then project it through an anamorphic lens uh. to unsqueeze it. Uh, so you're introducing additional image loss and de- degrading there. Uh, but the stewardesses made a ton of money mm-hmm. because it was X-rated, mm-hmm. very soft core, very tame, um, especially by modern standards. But you know, it it made something like twenty five million dollars, mm. uh, and it was actually the highest grossing 3D film of all time up to Avatar. Uh, So it made a ton of money for the investors. And what happens when you have a big hit 3D sex film? Well, then the door's flung open and everybody started making these things. So, you know, that was the primary outlet for 3D in the 70s was was porno. Uh, Why did it take 11 years for someone to make, I guess it was Tony Anthony and Fernando Baldi, who made Coming At You, which started that second boom in 1981. I think uh, because 3D's reputation was so uh, low at Mm. that stage that uh, nobody was willing to take a chance on it. (laughs) And Coming At You was the first. uh, A spaghetti uh, western, which was a genre which had probably reached a low point by that point, too. Maybe uh, even more disreputable than the softcore and hardcore porno films that were that were being made in 3D. Yeah, I, I, I guess Tony Anthony and, and his uh, team were uh, kind of, you know, retro visionaries in a way, and they <laughs> they wanted to, uh, you know, do this, and, and their mindset was if it, you know, everything but the kitchen sink is going to get thrown at you mm-hmm. or coming at you. Uh, but it was not really well photographed, so it doesn't hold up today at all. That being said, it was a huge hit, and it made a ton of money for uh, Anthony and his team. So that opened the floodgates, and that's when uh, Charles Band did Parasite, and you had uh, Friday the 13th 3D, Jaws. Uh, Amityville 3D. Amityville 3D, a lot of sequels. And then it dies Uh, out again by roughly the end of 1983, I guess. Yeah, I I was old enough to go to a lot of those. And more often than not, we had to get our tickets refunded because they were really projected badly. Well, on top of being just dark, there was nothing they they could do about the light being thrown on screen, I, you know, but uh, what what other problems happened? They didn't put the filter in front of the projector, or they weren't. Yeah, they weren't filtering it properly. Uh, I remember we had to go. I think it was like the fourth time we we went to a different theater when we finally sat and watched coming at you because it was sort of projected properly. <laughs> uh, the other ones that you know they had the alignment mismatched, so one image was higher than the other, meaning. It's forcing your left eye to look down and your right eye to look up, which is mm. not very natural. Uh, they they weren't masking the spillover image on the projection booth port, so you had, you know, a picture on the ceiling, on the side walls of the theater. It was just t- terrible. I mean, uh, I'm surprised that short-lived revival lasted as long as it did with so many bad presentations. But it was, you know, again, it it. It was the novelty factor, and it was a new generation of people that had never seen 3D. So, you know, the first batch of films did really well. I remember sitting through Jaws 3D, but my memory is I I couldn't see a single thing. I had no idea what was going on (laughs) on screen. 
that's not uncommon. That's it. Uh, so there again, you know, with what what we've done with Parasite, uh, and thanks to Kino Lorber, you know, we've got uh, we had new scans from the original negatives, and uh, they look beautiful. I think it's safe uh, to say, and I've seen this restoration of Parasite, it looks better than it ever did. Oh my goodness, uh, yeah. Uh, by far. <laughs> no. It's, it's as, as Ben said, you know, the, the, how hard it was to see these films. It's shocking that they would do a shoot anything outside of natural sunlight. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, yeah. that they would choose to, sh- to shoot scenes at nighttime or in dim rooms and, and, uh, and now, uh, we can see. We can actually see these nighttime 3D shots. Yeah, they're, you know, I, I, I got to give them credit because it was a very low-budget film and a very quick shoot, and they were working with a new camera system. And, you know, there, there are a lot of problems with alignment and things that we now can fix, which we have done. But, uh, you know, they were trying to do good 3D compositions, uh, sometimes very extreme, mm. which... To uh, a new audience that's only familiar with 3D movies of the last decade, they might it might take a little getting used to. Sure. Uh, a very deep parallax budget of foreground and background uh, imaging, but uh, when it works, it's really effective, and it's uh, you know it's a lot of fun. And and my impression, it's funny when we got the gig to do Parasite. Uh, Greg Kent, our technical director, and I were trying to figure out how we were going to get through it um but the film really grew on us and uh, you know the the more work that we did to improve and and correct the mistakes it the better it was looking and and uh, you know at one point it's like wow this this is actually kind of fun you know and we we really got very fond of the film and and grew to appreciate it more yeah i i enjoy it too and as it goes on it it, it gets a lot more fun and the the last act of the film has some really uh, outrageous uh, gore effects that oh, p- was part of which were devised by Stan Winston and yes. and, uh, and involved the veteran uh, musical actress Vivian Blaine who's uh, <laughs> wearing some outrageous makeup in the oh, movie. Oh my goodness! Yeah, uh, well, I, yeah, I said it's a, it's a long way from Guys and Dolls for for <laughs> for Miss Blaine, but. Uh, Hey, you know, she was a trooper, and, and it was a paycheck, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, she might have liked the idea of, of you know, doing a, a 3D film. I know that... Um, she the, seems the, like she's having fun. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. You know, for the, the actors and actresses, sometimes uh, they liked being part of what, at the time, they thought was going to be a, a whole new genre and... and technical innovation i know uh, nigel bruce the great character actor a lot of people will maybe know him as uh, dr watson in the sherlock holmes films with basil rathbone but he he had starred or had a uh, co-starring role in the first full three-strip technicolor feature becky sharp in Mm. 1935 and in 1952 when arch was casting for uh, he approached uh, Nigel Bruce to do it. His health was not good at the time, but he took the part and got through it because he wanted to, you know, be part of this new technical uh, breakthrough. So right. I think, for, you know, that maybe that's the case for Vivian Blaine on Parasite, too. It's fun to see her in that film. I, I don't know when was the last time she'd appeared in a film before that, but uh, between Guys and Dolls and 
Parasite. I can't think of too many films that she's. She was mostly a stage actress. I, I guess. think so. Yeah. Um, so around 2004, uh, digital 3D starts making its appearances. I guess there was there was uh, well the Polar Express, and then there was the reissue of. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, which had was retrofitted for 3D. Can you talk a little bit about that? About what happens when a film is not shot with native 3D cameras, and what some of these releases that are that are coming out that aren't being filmed in 3D, but then digitally retrofitted for 3D? Yeah. Uh, converted, I guess? It's converting. Uh, and uh, most of the 3D films of the last decade have been post-converted after principal photography. Uh, it's a very time-consuming and very expensive process to do it right. Uh, and when it's done right, it's remarkable. But again, and it helps that uh, when the director and cinematographers are shooting the film, that they're thinking about this. Pro- there have even been some cases where films have been converted where the filmmaker didn't have any idea that it was going to be in three D oh, afterwards. Yeah, yeah I saw Jurassic Park in three D, which the, I was blown away with. I thought that was a, a beautiful conversion. Yeah. Even The Wizard of Oz was yeah. an incredible conversion. Uh, but they spent a great amount of time and money on doing it properly mm. but uh, it's it's complicated because you have to take a flat image and you have to separate the layers and then you have to fill in the missing information and you know to create a truly deep 3d image or a natural 3d image uh, there can be a, a great amount of, of separation between the foreground and background objects and the greater the separation the, and the greater the depth the more you have to recreate digitally uh, and uh, that's not not an easy task and uh, we've actually considered uh, doing some conversions of lost vintage 3D films because mm-hmm. it's the only way they might be seen. In other and, words, you don't have both the left and right eye right. Uh, negatives or prints. Yes. And so you just take one side or the other and convert and it. Convert it, yeah. Um, but the, the process starts at $25,000 a minute. Uh, mm. And that's not going to happen with the, the the modest budgets that we are given to, to work on. So uh, it's it's a very costly process, uh, but but I love seeing it done well because it's really really effective. I remember there are a few films, and I think maybe pre Avatar, where there were just specific sequences they did in three D. Was that? because of the expense of it? What was the impetus behind it? There was a Superman... Yeah, Superman Returns turns. had a few sequences in 3D. I don't know if they were converted or shot. Yeah, one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films had had a 3D finale, I yes, believe. Yes, but that was Anaglyph, I think. Was Anaglyph, yeah. okay. Uh, I can't really answer that with any great knowledge. Um, I don't know what the thinking was. I, I think mm-hmm. that's exactly what it was. It was a test of a conversion process. So when Superman Returns came out, if you saw it in IMAX, there was 12 minutes or so and that was like in 3D. A, yeah, like a green flashing light on the screen that it would let you know. Yeah, yes, put right. on the mask now. <laughs> it wasn't too distracting. Put the mask on now. Put the mask on now. No, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing wrong with the projection. But you can't share the shock until you have the miracle movie mask. 
At showings of this motion picture, each patron will receive his own miracle movie mask. Then, but let's watch the scene again. Then you will lift your mask as he lifts his, and you will look through it with him into the weirdest nightmare world that man has ever dreamed or the screen has ever dared show. The new realm of horror that can only be seen through the mask. Well, that reminds me, the mask is a... Is a Canadian film from 1963, I think? 61. 61, which has had sequences in the film where you were told to put on your glasses, and then there was, in its original release, Anaglyph 3D uh, nightmare sequences in the film. Uh, And part of what you've been able to do with the 3D film archive, both with The Mask and also with so many of these early uh, 3D shorts from the earliest parts of cinema 1915 to the 1930s is convert them to a polarized process so uh, again seeing these films better than they ever looked before clearer and without the red green uh, filters uh, how how costly and difficult a process is that it's not costly uh, but it can be difficult and that's based on what material you have to work with mm. uh, the mask uh, is a film that we own the copyright on so we have all the existing elements uh, now there were three individual 3d segments in that film uh, we only had the left right separation masters on one of them mm. uh, the other two we had to scan from an original theatrical release print and fortunately uh, the the lab work was done by Technicolor meaning they used their dye transfer process and dye transfer does not fade so those red and green uh, left and right images that are printed on the single strip of film were still very solid and complete so by doing a, a very high resolution 4k scan we were able to digitally extract them. And I've never actually said which of the three segments were taken from anaglyphic and which were uh, discrete left-right, because you can't see a difference. It worked that well, Mm -hmm. and we were thrilled that that happened. Going back to the material from the 1920s and 30s, uh, it's a little more of a challenge because the dyes were not stable. Uh, and you also had different types of deterioration, uh, nitrate deterioration that were affecting that. Uh, so the results varied from film to film, but there's no set method that works for every film. A, an extraction method that works on one shot may not work for the next shot in, sure. in the same film. So it's very much a scene-by-scene basis mm. to try to make it work. Uh, on our 3D Rarities 2 release, which will be on Blu-ray next spring from Flickr Alley, uh, we started off with a short called A Day in the Country. And that was released theatrically by uh, Lippert Pictures in 1953. Uh, and it was done anaglyphic. But it was originally shot in 1941 uh, hmm. as a, a comedy short called Stereo Laughs. Well, Lippert was... Uh, pretty low on the distribution end of things. Uh, so they didn't use Technicolor for their lab work. They went to Pathé Color Labs. Mm. And Pathé was, again, the, you know, the budgetary color lab in Hollywood. And it, it probably looked good originally because the reviews were pretty favorable. But you take a 60 
six-year-old pathé color print now, and it's pretty faded. Right. And uh, extracting a, a left-right image from a faded anaglyph is pretty impossible. I mean, uh, the results vary, again, shot to shot, but it's the first time that we're actually putting a disclaimer up ahead of the film saying, this is what we had to work with, and this is the only surviving print. There are no elements. All the Because it was filmed in 1941, the camera negatives would have been nitrate. All that stuff was junked in the 60s. Mm. So this is the best it's ever going to look. It's not perfect, but, you know, you have to kind of accept it if you want to see it. Uh, so it's it's all over the map, and, and that's one of the biggest challenges with restoring any vintage 3D is every film is its own animal. Uh, and just when you think you've seen it all, you find new problems and issues you haven't faced before. Uh and techniques that you developed that work on one film will not work on the next. So it, it keeps, keeps us busy. And I have to say a, a major, major uh, shout out to Greg Kintz, who is our technical director. And he's based in Indiana. And he's the guy in the trenches that is, you know, making all these things work and, and finding challenges and fixes the to really make them look the best they can none of this stuff would look as good as as it does if it if it weren't for greg so he he deserves a lot of credit he does beautiful work the blu-rays have been coming out fairly regularly um but now we are in an era where uh physical media is sales are declining um the three three D TVs are no longer being manufactured. We had a what a short window of just a few years there yeah. where they were being made available. Uh, we discussed yesterday that three D Blu ray players are starting to taper off a little bit in terms of their manufacturing. So that's a that's a challenge for getting these out there for home viewing. Are there uh, other alternatives? Uh, has there been any anything done with uh, 3D streaming? Is it is it possible possible to uh, to do that even with a 3D TV and a th- or a 3D pro- home projector? Yeah, uh, it's funny you mention that because we're we're talking with somebody now about streaming capability of, of some of our work. Uh, but yeah, the the television display manufacturers really dropped the ball in a big way because I think they were trying to sell 3D to, you know, the average viewer uh, telling them that, you know, hey, you can watch sporting events and all that, and that's not going to fly, you know, with with people with families and whatnot, you know, expecting them to, you know, put on these glasses and, and watch something at home. Uh, but, you know, the, the, what's really tragic is is the early TVs had a lot of issues. The first couple of years of models had cancellation issues, and and, uh, they were prone to have a a pretty high rate of ghosting or or image crosstalk. But by the end of it, the the later model model OLEDs and and the 4K-capable sets look incredible. I mean, I... When I first saw the 3D image, it blew me away how good they had gotten. So just as they reached this almost level of perfection, they pulled the plug. And, yeah, that was a bit of a discouraging development. But um, I'm happy to say that that we've established a good core audience for our stuff. 
and we've got 17 releases now and we've yet to lose money uh a big part of that is we're able to keep our costs pretty low um and and you know that's that's a challenge because when you have a lot of technical work to do trying to keep it within a, a tiny budget is difficult but uh we have not lost money and there's a lot of people with projection systems uh in fact a friend of mine just got a, a terrific epson projector it's kind of an entry-level machine but it's got 3d capability and uh, they were selling it for seven hundred dollars and it's a great image uh, a very good quality so you can still get projectors you, there's still a few people uh, making players and uh there are also uh, more and more people looking at the films with VR headsets, uh, which you know you can use for gaming and PlayStation and everything else, but you can also watch a 3D movie on it. And that was incredible because they've got this, you put this VR headset on and it puts you in a seat in a movie theater where you know you can see rows of seats in front of you. You can turn around and see you know the 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 rows behind you, the, the projection boom and the light beam and everything. And there's a 3D movie on screen and you can watch it that way. And it's, you know, that was pretty incredible uh, to see some of our work uh, in that setting. So there's still plenty of ways to see the films. Uh, and I'm hoping, you know, the next 3D blockbuster that comes out, uh, whatever that may be, will at least reignite one brave manufacturer to offer a TV yeah. <laughs> display again. I'm sure everyone, a lot of people are betting on James Cameron's Avatar sequels and starting 3D again. Apparently he's doing some new so. things with the with the medium. Yeah, I hope so. Do you, uh, 17 releases so far, are there any coming up that you can announce? Well, yeah, uh, we've got... Uh, uh, 3D Rarities 2, which will be out next spring from Flickr Alley, and that's going to be a second collection of um, lost treasures uh, from the vaults, and uh, the, the centerpiece for that is uh, the first 3D feature filmed in Mexico called El Corazón y la Espada. Uh, it was shot in 1953, and it stars Cesar Romero and Katie Hirado. And uh, we did a Kickstarter campaign uh, earlier this year that uh, allowed us to go back and do 4K scans from the original left-right 35-millimeter camera negatives. It looks stunning, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, but we'll have that. We're going to have about 65 minutes of shorts as well on there. And we're doing something different on this release, which I'm really looking forward to seeing the response to and that is we're including some stereo slide material hmm. i mentioned earlier that the realist camera was introduced in 1947 and uh one of the biggest proponents of stereo photography was legendary comedian harold lloyd and uh over a 20-year period harold lloyd took over 200,000 stereo slides wow and outside of Harold and his friends and the immediate family, they have not been seen. And we've just closed a deal with uh, Suzanne Lloyd, uh, his granddaughter, to include a 10-minute segment of some of the best Harold Lloyd stereo images on Rarities 2. 
Uh, we've also got a segment called Mid-Century Memories in Kodachrome Stereo that's being assembled and curated by Hilary Hess. And Hilary is uh, a great collector of vintage stereo images. And she's putting together a 15-minute piece of mid-century Americana in 3D, uh, which is fascinating because you've got family events, parties, weddings, uh, just incredible images of everyday life that were photographed in 3D and color. So that's going to be an interesting extra on Rarities, too, that I'm looking forward to seeing you know, seeing out there. Sounds great. Me too. Is there a favorite 3D film of yours? One that you return to over and over? No. (laughs) (laughs) Ironically not. Uh, Because what happens when when you're working on something, the film that you're currently working on becomes your favorite because you live with it. Um, And right now, Taz's son of Cochise, the, the brilliant Douglas Sirk uh, Western is my favorite because uh, you know I'm looking at it every day uh, and and seeing this incredible location photography that uh, Russell Meddy did in Utah when they were shooting the film um, and that's you know I, I think that's you ask anybody that's working on restorations, you, you get so attached to a project when it's on the operating table that, uh, and you live with it and you're watching it multiple, multiple times. Uh, and then when that's finished, you kind of move on to your next project. Um, I don't find myself going back and looking at too many of the older ones. Uh, and that's why doing something like this screening tonight is a lot of fun for me because I get to look at it, something we worked on a year or so ago that I don't remember a lot of it. You know, it's just, it's it's a double-edged sword because you'll see things that, oh, wow, you know, I wish we had time or money to correct that or do that. Um, but it's it's sometimes fun to w- take a big step back from a project and then revisit it later. Great. I'm looking forward to seeing Taza in 3D. I've only ever seen it in 2D, and I'm a, a Cirque fanatic. So, Oh, my goodness. It's so beautifully done. Uh, and surprisingly, one of our research associates out in L.A., Mike Ballou, uh, did some detailed research on the film at the uh, USC library and went through production files and found something that nobody had ever known before, and that was that... Uh, Universal modified their 3D camera rig for this film, hmm. which gave them greater control of the uh, lens interaxial settings uh, and allowed them to uh, have more flexibility with location shooting on the film. And it really shows. It's uh, it, the depth is incredible, and it's and it's all very natural. And uh, uh, I think a lot of people are going to really be blown away with how good it looks. Looking forward to it. Bob Fermanek, 3dfilmarchive.com. An incredible resource. Recommend you going there. Nice to have you back in Madison again. Thanks for joining us. Jim, it's a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to seeing you and uh, everybody again. It's always great fun coming to Madison, so thank you very much. Thanks. I'm Jim Healy, joined by Ben Reiser. We'll talk to you soon.